0: Hey, and welcome to the third Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. On the show, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Helen Meese, electromechanical power engineer and Womanthology associate who shares her thoughts on gender balance in engineering, what's on the horizon where healthcare meets engineering, and ways to develop senior leadership experience at work. We also meet Lucy Warner, Chief Executive of the NHS Practitioner Health Service. Lucy leads the organisation that supports NHS doctors and dentists affected by mental health or addiction issues. She talks about the importance of caring for the NHS heroes who've been caring for all of us during the COVID-19 crisis. We'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who's going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. And welcome now to Dr Helen Mee's friend of the show. Helen, you've taken part in Womanthology before, but for those who missed your written articles, please could you remind us a bit about your career to date?
1: Well, I'm an electromechanical power engineer. Um, I have spent uh, a good probably 20 odd years now working in the defense industry. Actually, that's where I started my career. And, uh, that was sort of after university. I, I also did my PhD at Loughborough University as well. So I did my PhD in turbocharging and then I went on from there to go into industry. Uh, as I mentioned, it's the, mostly the defense industry. And then about 2013, I, 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 got an opportunity to apply for a job at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, uh, which was my institution. I'm registered as a chartered engineer there. And they took me on as a policy manager. So I I went to work for the institution for four years as uh, head of engineering and society and then latterly head of healthcare. And since then, since I left the institution uh, in 2017, I have continued to be involved in the institution so I'm now vice chair of the biomedical engineering division um, and I also host the institutions podcast and uh, I was also a trustee for a couple of years as well so I've been both a member of the institution and a member of staff which is quite weird and then I suppose that's led me on to where I am today really.
0: What sort of work do you do now?
1: Well, I kind of decided that I needed to put all of my policy work into practice. It was quite obvious that a lot of the healthcare related work that I'd been doing at the institution um, needed to be demonstrated in some way. So I set up uh, my own company in about the middle of 2018, I guess, and that's called The Care Machine. And we are essentially on a mission to support entrepreneurs in the medtech and healthcare sectors uh, to enable them to uh, scale up uh, their ideas and develop their technologies. And really the idea behind the company is to enable those people to get their products where they need to be, which is right with the patient. So that's really my driver behind uh, setting up the company. And I suppose I have a bit of a, a mantra around that which is obviously collaboration is key Uh, if we're going to ensure that technology reaches the patient we have to collaborate there has to be vision associated with that and um, in terms of being able to think about the future and think about what healthcare services are going to be needed in the future obviously we provide expertise and that comes in in the form of not just engineering but but business and science and project management and all kinds of other things that we kind of roll together uh, to provide our, our clients. And fundamentally, what's very important to me is compassion and ensuring not only that my clients um, feel that they are getting the right kind of help, but also making sure that the technology that they produce for the healthcare sector is all is all, always focused on the patient and the patient need. So yeah, I'm trying to to kind of live by my... By my mantra and also by the work that I've done previously uh, to try and, and improve um, care for patients.
0: You recently chaired our liftoff session where the attendees discussed the dangers of gender balance backsliding as a result of COVID nineteen. What were your key takeaways from the event?
1: Well. For a start, it was a superb event, even though I was chairing it. Obviously, uh, but it was it was great to see anthology coming back to the fore, and great to see you back in action, which is always wonderful to see. But I think what really stood out for me from the conversations that were had, particularly in the in the panel discussion, was thinking about doing rather than talking. We we spend an awful lot of time talking about these issues. But I think what you rightly said and and certainly what the other panel members were talking about was actually demonstrating that. And it probably comes back to to my, my belief in that, you know, you can talk about lots of things, but you have to be seen to be doing it and you have to, you know, get out there and lead from the front. And that's really what womanthology to me is about. I think it's important to make sure that we can take action. And to keep these issues of gender imbalance in the headlines, and I think that's that's very important now going forward, uh, particularly in light of COVID, that we need to ensure that women uh, do still have a voice and have enablers like womanthology to enable them to to have that voice and to have that seat at the table and for someone to to act as their advocate and i think that really was what stood out for me and i think it's important now more than ever that women have to have role models but they also have to engage with men to to create this discussion as well i think that is really fundamental that you know the it was it was very obvious in the session that men need to play an important role in enabling women and and it's that's not about saying that you know men have got to step up and you know but to work together it's about parity it's about balance and I think that was really what stood out for me so I think yeah there's there's an awful lot of work to do there's a lot of work womanthology is going to be able to do I think going forward um but it's it's about actioning those those tasks really now and getting them going forward
0: How do we create a fresh narrative for women in STEM and move beyond the need to be an inspirational or strong woman in order to receive the recognition we deserve?
1: Well, I come back to what I've just said, really, in terms of we need to be doing there needs to be action. Women need to see other women doing and achieving. Um, I think a couple of things that, that stood out for me, and it comes back to a policy report that it wasn't written by me, actually. It was written by um, the head of uh, education at the institution, a good friend of mine, Peter Feingold. Um, back in 2016, he produced a report called Big Ideas. And in 2017, a report called Stay or Go. And I think several things stood out for me there that we could be doing, that could be a fresh narrative. One really is about promoting stem as a people focused problem solving um you know societal societally beneficial discipline and and we need to contextualize that you know we need to give it case studies examples of what women are doing so it's a, again it's about doing it's about seeing the action of what women can achieve in the stem profession i think also broadening roots into particularly engineering, obviously in my my case, broadening roots into engineering degree courses, I think would go a long way to promoting more flexible entry opportunities for women. Um, there's still this idea that women shouldn't or can't do science or don't feel that it's a place for them. And so they miss out at those very formative periods of time, i.e. GCSE and A-level, to be able to then go on to do degrees in the subjects. Now, there are universities that are now opening up that don't require you to have those science um, skills, those science backgrounds that you you learn, again, learn by doing um, within the university. It's a much more practical approach. And I think that may be more appealing i think uh, to young women uh, so i think there's an opportunity there i think we need to have much more broad curriculum for young people uh, up to the age of 18 uh, i think we are um, siloing people too early and not giving them the opportunity to become multidisciplinary in their skill set we expect them to either do science or arts or languages um, and actually all of those are valuable to a STEM career, so we need to be able to broaden that that curriculum base. I think, and I guess the engineering community has has a really important place to you know, and the STEM community itself has a, an important role to play. It needs to identify and emulate how the most effective sort of ways of demonstrating careers can be put forward to young people. I think we we don't we don't give those clear examples and we also need to be thinking about the flashpoints where you know like like GCSEs A levels degree where people are struggling to make decisions and i think there's some opportunities there where the the science communities and industry could make a big difference and ultimately employers employers you know need to promote the message that that no employee should feel a need to Be uncomfortable about, particularly the the um, the stay or go report, really highlighted that women have to toughen up in order to be in the you know a STEM profession. And actually, you know, we shouldn't have to do that as women. It's not about being tough to be able to make it in in science and technology and engineering. It's it's about feeling about being yourself and about being who you are and and putting forward your ideas and your expertise in a way that is diverse and inclusive. And so I think employers have a responsibility to to get that message across that, you know, you don't have to be a certain type of person to be in STEM. And I think those are the new narratives that we really need to carry forward. That's quite a long answer, isn't it?
0: (laughs) But it's a very good answer as well. (laughs) In addition to your day job, you're on a number of boards and advisory panels. Please, can you tell us a bit about these and how valuable the experience is that they give you?
1: Yeah, being being on a board or being sort of involved at strategic level within an organisation, I think is really quite a valuable experience. I've as I mentioned earlier, I've been a trustee of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. I sit on uh, Loughborough University's Engineering Advisory Board. I'm vice chair of biomedical engineering division. So all of those things have exposed me to new areas of business. You know, in my in my early career, I was obviously very just focused on the engineering and and the nuts and bolts. But as you progress into project management into managerial roles and then obviously to run your own company you have to have a good grasp of business and marketing and branding and all of those things that you're not necessarily taught uh, at university and engineering so I think for me being able to take part in those sort of strategic boards I think has helped you know helped me understand what what the the needs are of of organizations and thinking about the strategies that are required for example you know the I'm a Key, um is a large charity and balancing the requirements between members needs and charitable aims is extremely difficult so that i think is something that that's really helped me with my own business and and my own development as a as a professional engineer but also a ceo of a company and i think it also enables you to mix with people you probably wouldn't have met in your working day as well. You know, I mean being getting people from different backgrounds and different professional levels really helps to develop you and and almost you you kind of get a benefit of them being mentors in some respects. You know, you can learn from their experiences. Um, and I think it's really built up my confidence. I think my ability to to kind of Make tough decisions has has eased an awful lot because of that experience of being part of of a strategic board. So um, I think, yeah, I would encourage anyone who has been toying with the idea or who's even never thought about it, yeah, definitely to get involved in a board.
0: And it's for a bit of a sense as well of practice makes perfect with these types of things. I
1: think really it's a it's an opportunity to kind of learn and you know you're we never stop learning we're always learning new things you know anyone who says that you know they're past the point of learning is is not really developing themselves at all um I think it's really important to to recognize that there's always something new that you can gain from that experience you know as I said mentoring from some of those people some of the 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 folks that were on the trustee board for example had huge amounts of experience and knowledge way beyond my experiences. And it was really nice to be able to ask them questions and, and spend time with them. And also because there were international members on that board as well. um, It was really nice to understand the cultural experiences that one can bring to, to that kind of thing. So, so yeah, I think, I think there's an awful lot to learn from, from the opportunity.
0: What's your advice to women about the best way to get high-level strategic experience, and also how to record it?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, join a board first, or become a non-exec director. Or even, you know, if, if that seems kind of a, a step too far to begin with, why not get involved with a local school and be a school governor? Those sort of opportunities, I mean, schools often don't have many people who are in STEM professions on their governor's board. So, you know, you could start there, and then work your way up and maybe look at, there are always organizations looking for non-exec directors. So those are the opportunities I would say, start with, and then talk to people who are on those boards, you know, get some insight first about the commitment that you need to make. Obviously in the case of, uh, of not-for-profit organizations, you're not going to get paid for that time. So I think you have to consider it as being a learning experience. And I think that's something that is recordable, you know, that you can use that to to sort of, A, you could see if one of those people might be a mentor for you, uh, both professionally or just, just generally. Um, and also there's, in terms of uh, professional development CPD, you know, being recording those uh, those experiences, being on a board and the sorts of things that you do. Obviously, you can't record everything. Some things are legitimately sort of sensitive, but um, but but you know, keeping a record of what you do. And for example, if you're a member of a um, a professional body, so for example, me being a member of the Army Key, um, I can record. My my attendance at these sort of things uh, as part of my professional development. So these are all ways of, of recording it, and there are loads of online courses as well. I can't stress that enough. There's there's some really great strategic planning courses uh, and things like that which you can do online at your own pace or, you know in your own time, and that will help build your confidence. You can record that again as um, as accredited uh, professional development, and then you can look to to get a place on a board
0: you're a healthcare specialist. What are the key trends we should all be looking out for where engineering meets health?
1: Oh my goodness, we could do an entire conversation just on that one question, I think. <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, the uh, Yes, I mean, hospitals today could not function without technology. Um, it's you know, you, you can't go into a hospital one end and come out the other without being touched by some piece of technology. So I think we'll start to see m- many more engineers being present with at, at the patient bedside. I think that is going to be fundamental to ensuring that uh, technology and health, um, you know, combine. I think, um, you know, the, they, the engineers at the moment are generally... On the periphery of patient care, they're generally not really seen as much, and people just don't know that they're there. They just think that they maintain equipment. Well, actually, you know, they don't realise that they develop new technologies. They work on a, in a range of areas of things like rehabilitation, orthopedics, data analysis, and modelling. So these engineers, I think, will start to appear much more at the bedside, and and i hope i would like to see in the future that engineers have parity with clinicians that's kind of me sticking my head above the parapet and there'll be a few people sucking breath <laughs> listening to this but but i think you know maybe not in my professional lifetime but certainly it is coming that that the engineer clinical engineer will be alongside the medical clinician and they will work together in a multidisciplinary environment to um, provide care to patients, I I think it will happen. I think what one of the things that we're going to see more of, particularly after COVID, is more technology in the home and certainly more technology in GP surgeries. I, I think remote health monitoring has really come to the fore during COVID. It's always been there, in the background, and there's lots of people been advocating for it. But now I think GPs have recognized just how much time they can save and how much more time they can spend with patients that need their time by ensuring that they can use uh, online services, monitoring, sensors, those sort of things. And I think we will see a huge growth in those in the coming years, particularly around older people. Uh, so monitoring people as they get older uh, and also problem that we're having with growing lifestyle illnesses as well, things like obesity and diabetes. We will see more technology that will help people manage their health and their diets and their mental health to to help them address those uh, lifestyle illnesses.
0: Helen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Finally, what's coming up next for you? What are you excited about? Goodness,
1: where do I start with that one? Obviously, I would continuing to grow my own business, you know, for me, the care machine is something that will grow and evolve over time. So I'm absolutely relishing working with some incredible technology developers, engineers, researchers. So I'm really excited uh, to see what develops there and what new projects come into the company. Establishing our presence as kind of the go-to company, particularly for early startups and early stage research. It's kind of a place where others fear to tread. Um, it's that slippery slope down into the sort of technology void where often technology disappears. And um, it's a hard area to work in, but I'm very keen. And obviously having gone through a PhD myself and know that knowing the struggle that researchers have in developing technology and getting it to market and bringing it to market at scale, that's really where my passion lies. So that's that's where I'm very excited to be to be working. We've got quite a number of projects in the pipeline, and I'm also working with a wonderful business partner, my my colleague Angela Hobbs of Wilkinson Hall. But we have a number of organisations and companies that we work with. But Angela and I are really passionate about healthcare and we're, we're working on quite a few projects. So watch this space. There'll be a few things popping out uh, over the coming months, I think. I'm doing a lot of advocacy in, in engineering and healthcare, and I'm developing policies and generally weighing in on various debates around technology adoption and those sorts of things. So I'm doing still doing quite a lot of conference speaking, despite COVID. Um, I seem to spend an awful lot of time on the computer or like now on podcasts talking about the subject. So that's been really great to to be able to talk about the importance of engineering in healthcare. And one of the things that I am really looking forward to doing is mentoring more. I, I feel it's really important once you get to a certain stage in your career that you should be able to pay it back and so i'm i'm working with a lot of young people now uh, to develop their engineering careers and and that is just so enjoyable it just makes me it makes me recognize that i've done very well for myself so far and that i've achieved something that i never thought i would do for someone who failed all but one a level um i kind of feel that i've i've you know made my mark in the world in terms of my achievements so it's really nice to be able to encourage other young people who perhaps are having the same doubts in their mind as i had you know back then that they can do it and they can achieve and and for me i think that's that's a fantastic opportunity helen
0: thanks ever so much we look forward to catching up with you soon
1: thank you ever so much for having me
0: a reminder that our women in the picture photo competition on twitter and instagram closes on friday the 14th of august 2020 the winner will receive 100 pounds of vouchers and appear in womanthology there's also a runner's up prize we want to shine a light on the experiences of working women around the world we're looking for selfies that capture the challenges and the triumphs the awe-inspiring multiplicity of women's roles in a rapidly changing world we're asking women to publish selfies of themselves at work so this could be in your regular job or even as a volunteer and post them on Twitter and or Instagram to enter just follow us on Twitter. That's at womanthology UK and Instagram at womanthology post your images on Twitter and or Instagram using the hashtag women in the Picture. Make sure you post your entries before 23:59 59 British summertime on Friday, the 14th of August, 2020. Please be sure to check out full terms and conditions on the website before submitting your entry. Good luck!
2: Hey, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor for Womanphology, and I'm here once again to tell you a little bit about our new written issue Health Heroes. This week you will read about Professor Radon Twarok, a professor of biological mathematics, who will tell us about her passion for mathematics and how maths and virology can come together. Professor Nina Mahdi, President of the Medical Women's Federation, talks about how she became a doctor because she was told she couldn't be one, how the NHS has been impacted by COVID-19 and how she believes there are no women's issues and men's issues, there's just issues from society which we must face together. Dr. Diana Garay informs us about her work on PERSO Developing World project to enable manufacture of personal respirators for use in combating COVID 19. Also, Dr. Olivia Champion, the founder of Biosystems Technology, will highlight the science behind COVID-19 and her life as an entrepreneur and a microbiologist. She also gives advice to female academics who are considering launching their own company. Ellen Huff Davis, founder of Aparito Health, talks about her digital healthcare company and how COVID-19 has propelled the need for remote patient monitoring and digital outcomes from nicety to necessity. Sarah Lockie will talk with us about her daughter, Tilly, who is a double amputee having survived meningitis aged just 18 months. Tilly, now 13 years old, wears a pair of Open Bionics hero arms and works with different people and companies to make life easier for other child amputees. Sarah is a fundraiser for the charity Meningitis Now. Last, but not least, Kendall Turner, the founder of Bloom Sheffield, will tell us about the community flower garden for women and girls that promotes positive mental health through therapeutic ortho- And that is all from me. Check out this week's issue as they all teach you something new.
0: And now, welcome to the show, Lucy Warner. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Lucy, can you start off by telling us about your career to date and your educational background?
3: Yeah, sure, so I am an NHS driver, I left school with no idea what I really wanted to do so I kind of stayed on till sixth form and then thought I don't really know what I want to study, what I want to do didn't really fancy going to university but I didn't necessarily want to stop studying and I saw an opportunity for a management training role within the NHS and applied and I got it and yeah, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for but it was a fabulous grounding because it gave me an opportunity to work in so many different parts of the NHS. Uh, so I worked in primary care settings, hospital settings, and across those hospital settings I worked in stores and catering, I worked on the wards, I worked in operating theatres, and I worked in what the management suite of offices as well. Uh, and at some point I was even going round sort of counting... In bushes in, in hospital gardens ready for a tendering exercise all sorts of things um, and that really kind of gave me a vast understanding of sort of the different ways that the nhs operates and all the different elements that are needed to deliver care to patients and in my career over the last few years um i've worked say in secondary care settings uh, working you know Purely, purely management roles, lots of spreadsheets and and databases. Um, I've worked in lots of liaison roles where I've gone out talking to GP practices about the services that they need from hospitals and working across large county areas. I've worked in GP practices, um, helping them develop new services, helping them look at the way they run their services themselves. And as a result of that, I then got an opportunity to work for one of the national teams that was looking at quality and safety issues right across the NHS Um, and from there, I'm never one to say no to an opportunity, I got the chance to go across to Gibraltar and spent about 18 months living and working in Gibraltar doing some redevelopment work for them, looking at the way their services ran, mainly focused on primary care but really a a large piece of transformational work around how services ran in Gibraltar and when I came back uh, was around the time of the Harold Shipman um, issues and there was an inquiry going on as to what happened Um, and that really gave me an opportunity to get involved in a completely different way looking at safety and quality of care for patients and building on the recommendations that came out of that inquiry and one of the aspects there was that he had had access to medication and drugs when patients had died and it linked to when a doctor has an issue with their own mental health or with an addiction issue. And it was very difficult for doctors to access care and support when they identified those issues. Um, And so it was decided that we would kind of test the idea of running a service that was specifically aimed at treating doctors and other health professionals, treating them, getting them well, getting them back to work. And that's where I've ended up today, running that service.
0: Could you tell us a bit more about the NHS Practitioner Health Service and what it does?
3: So, NHS Practitioner Health has been designed and developed so that doctors and dentists and other health professionals can access confidential NHS care. It's really difficult for a doctor, for example, to identify that they're unwell and to get confidential care, particularly around issues like mental health when they're actually seeking that help perhaps from a colleague, somebody that they sit on a committee with, somebody that they train with or work with um, and the stigma and the sort of shame issues of admitting to having a problem can be particularly difficult. So, Practitioner Health is really there to provide a, uh, a mirror NHS service alongside the existing mainstream NHS services but to provide that confidentiality around those people who want to access care in our service. Uh, We've been running for about 12 years now. We started off just in London as a team of three of us and uh, we're now nationwide and available on a self referral basis for every doctor, every dentist in the country and we now have a team of about 300 clinicians and therapists and administrators who work in the organisation. And our role really is to make sure that doctors can access care when they need it, they can access it in a confidential way, Uh, we can offer prescribing, we can offer therapy, we can offer groups, um, and we can really support them to get well, get back to work and and get on with the day job of treating their patients.
0: What a fantastic service.
3: Thank you. Well, I think so. I mean, it's it's the type of service that it's actually a real honour to work in, because we all know that these these doctors and other health professionals are, you know, they work incredibly hard. They train incredibly hard. They're so important to the well-being of each and every one of us, right up and down the country. And, and COVID has proved that how important our doctors and our other health professionals are to us. And so, being able to work in a service where you're making a real impact in terms of getting somebody well and getting them back to work and getting them able to carry on treating the patients and doing the job. honoured to be part of
0: it. What does your role involve on a day-to-day
3: basis? It's it's a strange organisation in that we have a relatively flat hierarchy, so there are a lot of us. Most of the people working in the organisation are clinicians and therapists, and then we have a handful of us who work in administrative. Type roles of which I consider myself to be one so you know in past times I could be doing anything from making sure we had enough toilet roll in the office to uh, writing up a service specification and, and bidding on a contract but these days in terms of how we're working in Covid time a lot of my time now is spent uh, promoting the service talking about the service and thinking about how we develop the service knowing that we're likely growing. So my my, my role essentially is, is to be an ambassador for the service, to talk about the service, to raise awareness about the service. Um, in the past, I did a lot of presentations going up and down the country. Nowadays, all of that is spent sitting in front of the computer and doing that via Zoom. Um, but it's been amazing how much we've been able to connect with people even in these times. And then I spent a lot of time thinking about sort of do we have enough capacity
0: you been supporting doctor and dentist colleagues in the NHS through the pandemic?
3: talked to family and friends about how tough it was at times. Um, there were people feeling a lot of guilt around uh, perhaps leaving their families behind when they went into work or leaving their colleagues behind when they went home. Um, and for those people who weren't actually working on the front line but were manning phones and dealing with remote consultations again they were feeling that they perhaps should be doing more. And what people really wanted in those early months was that connection, that sense of connection. And so one of the most important things we did was establish online virtual groups. Um, We called them common rooms actually, where people could come together um, and you could have a doctor who was working in Norwich and a doctor who was working in Nottingham um, in the same virtual online common room, having a coffee together and talking about how it felt for them right now, how they were handling things, tips, sharing, reflecting on their own experiences. And I think that's been really powerful. And we've run about 200 of those common rooms over the last four or five months, um, really enabling huge numbers of staff right across the NHS to come together and, and share their experiences with one another. Now, as we're coming out the other end, we're starting to see numbers increasing again, and we're kind of up to what we would...
0: COVID-19 impacted on your job at a practical
3: level? So, I mean, there was definite things like sitting in front of Zoom um, and sitting in front of my computer and not moving as much as as I have done in the past and not travelling up and down the country as much. Listen to topics, um, and we've been using a lot more sort of uh, technology really to connect people, running different groups, running different uh, support groups, therapeutic groups, or just p- peer support reflective type groups online.
0: Please, can you tell us about the new practitioner health wellbeing app?
3: Yes, yeah, so exciting. This is a new thing for us um, and it's something we have developed just over the last few months but we've been working with an amazing organisation called 87% Foundation um, and they would already been doing some work with employee assistance programmes up and down the country but they've worked with us to really focus on pulling together content that's aimed at health professionals and the idea of the app is that you go in and you complete a sort of circle of questions around the different aspects of your mental fitness Um, so we all have lots of apps that help us with physical fitness you know are we walking 10,000 steps a day are we eating healthily but this is really focused on our mental fitness so about our work-life balance about our stresses um, about our responses to different uh, circumstances and helps us give us sort of fit light approach to a circle of mental fitness and then once everybody has their individual uh, plan related to that it helps you then drill down where might I want to improve um, and understand more about how I get a better work-life balance or I'm having difficulty managing my emotional relationships where can I get some more information around that so that's the idea from the app that it really helps you
0: I like that and i like the idea that it's an ongoing thing as well that you keep coming back to i think that's brilliant
3: absolutely and that's the whole thing so each day it will give you a different little questionnaire or some articles or uh, a youtube something to watch and then to learn more and you can ignore it if you're busy that day you can come back to it another day it's not too sort of you know not too many notifications coming your way and bugging you uh, but there's always new material there to help you um, and and you can do
0: more what a brilliant approach
3: we hope so um so we're just rolling it out now we're hoping to make it widely available to doctors and, and longer term to others right across the nhs
0: and finally what's coming up next for you and the nhs practitioner health service
3: so i mean definitely the app i think it's, it's a fantastic innovation for us and um, If we can get it rolled out to to others right across the NHS, we we hope to do that. We're working with NHS England, thinking about what might be needed for staff for the next, you know, not just the next few months, um, but over the next two to three to five years. Um, I think what's been really exciting is the NHS as a whole and the country as a whole has really sort of understood how important the people who work in the NHS are And everybody is very focused on making sure that the well-being of staff, the morale of staff is is, is vital and that we keep boosting that and working on that and providing them with resources that are going to help them. So I think what's really exciting is that kind of newfound focus that everybody has on ensuring that we appreciate and value the staff who work in the NHS. For us as an organisation, we... Continue every single day to, to do something new, and yesterday we had a strategy meeting and we're thinking about kind of our new developments for the next two years. Lots of opportunities, I think, around being able to provide online support, educational support, helping doctors understand how their own teams um, and, and managers in the health service understand how their own uh, staff might be feeling right now we're running some events very soon aimed at managers about thinking about why might somebody be behaving in a certain way don't necessarily think that there's something wrong with their performance think that there actually might be something wrong with their mental well-being so lots of focus really on helping people uh, focus on well-being focus on mental fitness and when people need it making sure that the right support is there for them in terms of mental health
0: Lucy thank you so much it's been a pleasure chatting with you sadly that's all we have time for this episode thank you so much for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe your feedback is really important so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app that's all for now But join us for the next episode where we'll be hearing about the ways that technology has been saving us all throughout COVID-19 and the women that have been making that happen. For now, take care and stay safe.